0: So uh, were any of you around back in 1992, I think it was, when I filled in for the summer at Open Door when Dave Johnson took a sabbatical? Got, got some of the old timers back there. So we were—I uh, I filled in for Dave during the sabbatical, and um, uh, they were meeting in Robbinsdale High School, and we'd meet in the gym— and there's no air conditioning, and so during the summer, it would get very, very hot, and those bleachers were absolutely uncomfortable, and, and if, you'd sweat like crazy, even if you weren't preaching. But if you were preaching, you'd even sweat more, and, and by the third service, the place smelled like a locker room. It was just, it was, but they packed it in every, every weekend, and it was, it was an exciting time. But in, in one of those services, at the end of one of those services, a young lady approached me um, with a rather intense look on her face, and um, uh, she told me her story in the process of leading up to a question. The story was, she said that up until eight years ago, she was an on-fire, uh, passionate, Jesus-loving Christian. And then um, something happened. She said that all of her life, uh, her deepest aspiration was to have children. She just was one of these people wired to be a mother, and so she wanted to have children. And so she gets married, and After a couple of years of trying, her husband and her were not having any success. And so they went to the doctor to find out if there was any kind of problem here. And the doctor ended up bringing them this bad news that for biological reasons, um, it is extremely unlikely that they'll ever be able to conceive by natural means. Next to impossible. And it was devastating to to the couple, especially to this woman, because it was her lifelong dream. But they didn't give up. They kept on praying. And, and, and they had friends pray, and, and others in the family pray. And lo and behold, three months after this doctor had said, it's next to impossible that you'll ever conceive and have a child, she conceived, and, and she was pregnant. Well, hang on. Because, um, yeah, this was the greatest miracle in the world for her. She said she went around and testified to everybody about how God had miraculously given her this child. Just elated. And everything went fine in the pregnancy. Everything was healthy. But... In the process of giving birth, something went tragically wrong, and the baby ended up being stillborn, died in the process of, of being, and so this lady, understandably, was thrown into a, just an, an abyss of, of confusion and, and anger and, and depression. At one point, she reached out to a, uh, a professor that she had taken a class from, and that she respected, a professor of theology, and, and she went to him to try to get some answers to her questions. And she asked the question, why would God get, miraculously answer the prayer and give me this child only to take the baby away, to kill the baby in the process of giving birth to this baby? And the, professor answer, the professor's answer was, was something along these lines. He, he says, well, God's ways are mysterious. Um, His ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. Uh, But there's nothing that happens by accident. There there are no accidents in God's providence. He is sovereign over all things. He controls all things. All things happen according to his will and for his glory. And so as tragic as this is, in your experience, it ultimately is for his glory. And our job as Christians is to glorify God, uh, even though it hurts. And so give God the praise for this. And then he added, and when God glorifies himself, it's often, usually, there's... Things that he wants us to learn and, or things that he's disciplining in us. And so, so search your heart to find out what it is that God wants you to learn from this. And maybe when you learn the lesson, uh, God will bless you with another child. Yeah, and that's the last time she went to church. Um, and so she, she says, what do you think of that? And my response was, what, what do I think of that? Let, let me get it straight. According to this professor, God miraculously gives you a child, fulfilling your life's dreams, getting it to a fever pitch full of expectation, and then at the last minute, kills your child for his glory. And then there's a lesson you're supposed to learn, but He doesn't tell you what the lesson is. Kind of like he says, here, kill your baby, now you go figure out why. What do I think of that? I, 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 honestly, that's more ghastly than anything I can imagine the worst mobster in the world doing to his worst enemy. Um, and, and I'm so sorry that you were afflicted with this, especially at a time that this deplorable picture of God was, was slammed on you at the mo- moment in your life when you needed God the most, uh, and I, I'm, I'm truly sorry about that. And, and she says, well, that's what made me quit. I, I, I could never bring myself to love and serve, let alone trust a God who could play such a cruel joke on anyone. And I told her, I, I totally to get that. If I thought that God was involved in all the misery in the world, that God, it was all orchestrated for the glory of God, all the crimes, all the terrible things that, that, that are done, if I thought that God was involved in all that, I would feel a moral obligation not to worship him because to worship him would make me complicit in his crimes. And she was really surprised to hear that. But then she said, well, then why? why if, if God didn't take my child, then, then why did my child die? And I'll come back to that point at the end of uh, this, this, or towards the end of this message. Uh, but it, it opened up an opportunity for me to introduce this lady into a, to a God who looks very, very different than the God that this professor had given her, uh, a God who's, who's, who's never on the side of death, but who's always on the side of life, and and the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ. And, and that opened up the door for her to begin to move back into the Christian faith, because as as angry as she was at that picture of God, she had a heart that was for Jesus. And Jesus didn't let her go. Um, And and so she was able to start to move back into, uh, towards the the Christian faith. Um, I get questions like that all the time. It seems like the older I get, the more I get them. Uh, People asking, they they confront some kind of hardship or disaster or calamity, whatever, and and, and they're told that it's all for the glory of God and that there's a lesson that they're supposed to learn or maybe God's punishing them or disciplining them or whatever. And like this young lady, it sends a lot of people down into a spiral. and Some completely abandon the faith because of that. It is this idea of of God controlling everything, even the disasters of life, and, and, and intentionally planning those is I think the greatest misconception that is out there, it's the most damaging misconception that's out there. Um, it is just, just destructive. And, um, but here's the thing. The people who espouse this perspective are sincere. They are, this professor, I'm sure, was, was just giving this young lady what he sincerely believed the Bible taught. And there's some passages that they think support this perspective and that they appeal to, uh, to, to advocate this perspective. Uh, one of the main ones is Romans 9, um, but the reason we didn't include that in this series that we're in now is because I, I taught on that last year the year before. Recently, I taught on that, and so if that's a passage that bugs you, I encourage you to do a little search on our search engine, and you'll find the, the, the message. What I haven't talked about, and it's, it's one that is, I, I, I place it like second in terms of the, the appeal of the passage, the, the frequency with which it's appealed to, to support this all-controlling model of God, um, is John 9. John 9, verses 1 through 3. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at this passage and um, and take it apart and see what it means. Here's what it says. Uh, Jesus was walking along and he saw a man blind from birth. So his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, or Jesus responded, neither this man nor his parents sinned, he was born Blind, so that God's works might be revealed in him. So they come upon this blind guy, and the disciples want to know who's to blame for this, who's at fault for this, him or his parents. Uh, they clearly hadn't read the book of Job, because the whole book of Job is it was written to argue that people's suffering is not necessarily connected to their wrongdoing, their holiness, or their guilt, or anything of the sort. It can be just random. Uh, but they apparently hadn't read that book, or if they had read it, they forgot about it, or maybe they misunderstood it. I don't know, but if they had read it, they wouldn't ask this question, but that's the question they're asking. Um, this assumption that, that God or the gods are involved in our afflictions, and that we're being punished when we go through hardships and afflictions and disasters, it is as old as humanity itself. You, you find, in one form or another, you find this in every culture throughout history. I, I think it reflects something of the the guilt in the human heart. It's, it's, we just assume that we're being spanked when terrible things happen to us. It's as old as can be. And I find Christians all the time who fall into this. Like, what did I do to deserve this? Uh, like, like, you can read God's will off of all the suffering of life. But this is a, the assumption his disciples have. And you can tell how deeply entrenched this assumption is uh, by the fact that they're even willing to entertain the possibility that maybe this guy himself is to blame, even though he was born blind. Which means the only time he could have been sinning is in the womb. How does that work? I, what, what could an unborn baby do that would warrant God if they're going, "Oh, I smite you, little baby, bad baby, you're sucking your thumb too hard, or, or you're too much amniotic fluid you're drinking"? I don't. It's it's nuts. It just shows you how mistaken theological positions can lead people to some really screwy conclusions. But that's how it is. They're convinced someone's got to be to blame, and so it's got to be either him or his parents. Well, Jesus refutes the assumption. He says, neither this guy nor his parents. But then, at least on standard translations, the answer he gives isn't much better. Because he says, well, the reason this guy was born blind was so that the works of God could be revealed in him. And, and the implication is that God intentionally had this guy born blind so that Jesus could come along 20 or 30 years later and heal him of this blindness, showing off the goodness of God. Though if that's showing off the goodness of God, it wouldn't have been good for God not to blind the guy in the first place. Anyways... Um, and, and, and so the, the question is, like, uh, what, what's going on with this passage? What is Jesus saying here? And see, here's the thing. Uh, folks, and here I'm thinking mainly of the Calvinists who believe that everything is predestined and that everything is meticulously controlled by God. And so God brings all the disasters for his glory. They take this passage and they, they, they use it to support that perspective. See, God was involved in the blindness as much as in the healing. And so, so we have to accept that blindness and other infirmities are all part of God's great design, uh, and they're meant to manifest the glory of God. And that's the theology that this professor had when he slimed this young lady with his answer about why her, her baby had, had died. Uh, the question I want to ask this morning is, is that reading of John 9, is that, is, is that warranted? Is that, is that right? And this will shock you a lot, but I'm going to argue it's not. <laughs> Uh, I think there's something seriously wrong with it. So there's three things that are mistaken about that reading of John 9, all right? The first thing is this, and it's always the most fundamental thing. It's that that Jesus is the full and complete and perfect revelation of of the Father. Uh, He is the exact likeness of God's very essence, it says in Hebrews 1.3. And so if any interpretation of any passage leads to a conclusion or a view of God that contradicts what we learn in Jesus, that's enough to tell you that something is off with that interpretation, Think about the the, the implications of, of this. This picture of God, I think, is radically inconsistent with what we learn about God and Jesus Christ. According to this interpretation, God is behind every nightmare, every disaster, every calamity, every atrocity that's ever happened to anyone in all of history. It was all orchestrated by God for his glory. And so every single war... And every detail of every war and every battle of every war and every soldier or civilian or child that was ever killed or mutilated or terrorized or driven insane by a a war, all that is exactly as planned for the glory of God. And Hitler's massacring of 6 million Jews and 4 million other people and 1 million children under the age of 5. And Stalin's slaughtering of 30 million of his own citizens in in communist Russia. And the Khmer's genocide uh, that eliminated about 2 million Cambodians. And so every genocide in history, all of it is planned and orchestrated, masterminded by God for his own glory. And every child that's ever been abducted, every child that's ever been abused, uh, sold into sexual trafficking, every child that's ever been gassed, all of it was exactly as planned by God for his own glory. And every famine that ever wiped out a population or every, every plague that ever wiped out a population and every starving child, every child that's ever starved to death and every parent that's ever had to helplessly and in, in despair watch their child starve to death, all of that is exactly as planned for the glory of God. And the 13 million people right now on the planet who are in no man's land in these refugee camps because no country will take them in. And our own border where we've got hundreds of kids who don't even know where the parents are because they got deported and now we can't find them. All of this is supposedly for the glory of God. And, and, And everyone who's ever had their body racked with some debilitating fatal disease everyone who's ever suffocated in a mudslide or drowned at sea or died in any other kind of natural disaster, and every kid who's ever had their body reduced to being nothing but a host for colonies of parasites, all of that torment, all of that pain, all that torture, all that nightmare, all of it, every detail of it is is ordained by God for the the glory of God. Folks, I submit to you that there's nothing God glorifying about a little child full of parasites or any of the other terrible atrocities I just mentioned. That doesn't glorify God. Uh, the cross glorifies God, where God himself gives himself for us. Jesus says, this is the glory of the Father. It's, the glory is not in the pain and the mayhem and the nightmares, the disease and the calamities. And, and this picture of God is just radically inconsistent with what we learn in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. And he tells us, I've, I haven't come to kill or st- kill anything or steal anything or destroy anything. That's what the devil does, John 10.10. 10. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And that itself is telling us that the God, the God revealed in Jesus Christ, is always on the side of life, and he's never on the side of death. Amen? Yeah. He's, he's not a death God. Yeah. Satan is the Lord of death, and he always comes to kill, steal, and destroy. So if something's killed, stolen, or destroyed, don't attribute that to God. That ultimately goes back to the one who's the Lord of death, the enemy who's always working the roaring lion to kill, to steal, and destroy whatever he's capable of. And throughout the ministry of Jesus, you just see that God is on the side of life. Uh, and Jesus, he, he, he set people free from their infirmities, right? Never once did he ever inflict anyone with an infirmity. Uh, he, he, he fed hungry people. Never once did he orchestrate their being hungry and starving. That's just not what he do. And, and he, he set the captives free. There wasn't one time where he made anyone a captive. And he welcomed the little children to come onto him. He never orchestrated that they get kidnapped and sold into sexual slavery or any of the other atrocities that happen to kids. And see if, we see, if in seeing him we see the father, John fourteen nine. then if we can't imagine Jesus doing something, we shouldn't imagine the father ever doing that. Because he's the perfect representation of the father down to the father's very essence. And I I can't imagine Jesus ever orchestrating uh, the the kids being sold into sexual slavery or having their bodies racked with parasites or having them kidnapped and the parents never find out where they are or or any of those other kind of atrocities. And if you can't imagine Jesus doing it, we shouldn't imagine the Father doing it. But this interpretation that I'm talking about, it forces us to imagine that the Father is involved in all these atrocities. He's orchestrating all these because somehow it glorifies him. Uh, That itself is enough to tell you, That something's amiss with that interpretation. Even if you don't go any further, even if you can't figure out what's wrong, know that something's wrong because that's not what God looks like. Amen? Okay, that's my first argument. And I'm just getting warmed up. Here's a second one. Here's the second one. Every single other account where Jesus encounters a a person with disabilities, with with infirmities, or any kind of affliction. In every other case, Jesus never once suggests that their affliction was due to God punishing them or or ordaining it for his glory or anything of the sort. In fact, what you find throughout the Gospels, Jesus and the Gospel authors uniformly diagnose afflictions as being the direct or indirect result of the the corruption of the kingdom of darkness. They frequently diagnose a a demonic cause to it, uh, but it's always seen as being part of Satan's oppressive reign. Which is why Peter could summarize Jesus' whole ministry in Acts 10. He's preaching a sermon to, to Cornelius, and he says this Jesus was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, first of all, note that Jesus went about doing good. He didn't go about sowing disasters and mayhem and anything of the sort. He, he's always on the side of good. And when we say God is good, we've got to mean something like what we mean when we say God is good. Uh, Good's got to mean something the same, because otherwise we're saying nothing when we say God is good. Might as well call him evil. No, God's good in the normal sense of good. He does good things. And one of the good things that he does in Jesus is he frees people from these afflictions, all who are oppressed by the devil. That statement itself tells you that to be afflicted is to be under the oppression of the devil. It doesn't mean that there's a demon behind every sickness that you've got, but it does mean that if, if the devil and other principalities and powers weren't corrupting creation, we wouldn't have these kind of afflictions. In fact, the word that's often used for uh, the affliction in the Gospels, it's not the normal word in Greek. It's the word mystics. And it literally means to flog or to be beaten. And so Jesus sees these people as being uh, as victims of the, the, the enemy's regime. They're being flogged by, by, by Satan, and he comes to set them free. The only exception, the one exception to this is John 9. It's the only place where God is associated as as in some way the cause of an infirmity. And so what the Calvinists want to do with this passage is they take this passage, and now they're going to privilege it over the other passages and use it to reinterpret all these other passages to make them say something that they don't say. They all say that the, the infirmities are the result of Satan's reign, so what would the Calvinists do is they'll say, well, yeah, uh, these afflictions are caused by Satan's reign. But since John 9 says that God is also involved in it, then it must be the case that God is controlling or uh, ordaining what, what Satan and demons do. And so, yes, the, the, the demons are the immediate cause of the afflictions, but the ultimate cause is God ultimate explanation. Because everything that the devil does, is, is, it's, it's, it's within God's providence. It's, it's part of his design. He ordains it, and, 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 and Satan carries it out. Folks, I submit to you that that is just bad exegesis, this bad hermeneutics, this bi- bad Bible interpretation. It's not the good way to read the Bible. Don't take one passage, especially when that one passage says something different on a topic than all the other passages say, and then use it to reinterpret all these other passages to make them say something that they don't say. That's just not the way to go about it. Uh, and besides, if, if, if God, if, if the Father is ordaining what the devil does, uh, and then when Jesus sets people free from the oppression of the devil, he's really setting them free from the oppression of the Father. He's saving people from God the Father. What's wrong with this picture? <laughs> he says, I reveal the Father. I don't like work at cross purposes with the Father. Yeah, my Father afflicts, but I come along and heal. No, that's, that, that, that's a schizophrenic God. And on top of that, if everything the devil does and demons do, if, if that is all what God ordains them to do, what God uses them to do, then how is God really different from the devil? I'm sorry. I don't mean to be insulting, but doesn't it follow? How is God? Now, Calvinists get a little irate when you raise this argument. Um, in fact, they can get really irate, chafed, bristle. Because uh, when, when, they, they'll, they'll say that God is infinitely different from the devil. Because, see, God is all good uh, in, in ordaining that the devil do these evil things, but the devil is evil for carrying them out. Yeah, it, it makes sense of that. God's all good for ordaining the devil to do the evil things, but the devil is evil for doing what God ordained him to do. And see, folks, honestly, when, when, when they give an explanation like that, and that is the explanation they, they give, they might as well just be speaking in tongues, as far as I'm concerned, because all I hear is... What does that mean, even? What does that mean? What, does that, what could that possibly mean? It, it, how is it not like this? I've got a baseball bat. I hit Jerry over the head, break open a skull. And, and, and you say, oh, that was evil. And I go, oh, no, no. I'm all good for using the bat for the purposes of breaking open Jerry's skull. But the bat is all evil for doing what I use it to do, to break open a skull. Would anyone buy that? I don't think so. <laughs> that... But the bottom line is that, the bottom line, folks, is that it's never good to take one passage and use it as the the, the interpretive lens through which you're going to now redefine all the other passages. If I had to, a better approach would be this. If this is what John 9 is saying, that God was involved in this, guys being born blind, I'd say, "Whoa! I guess there's an exception. Because all the other passages I find, it's, it's the devil doing this. And I know that God and devil are not in the same camp. So normally it's, it's, it's a result of the enemy's regime uh, polluting the world and afflicting people and stuff like that. Uh, but I guess there's one exception. This guy, apparently, God intentionally had him born blind so that Jesus could come along a couple decades later and heal him. Weird, but if I had to accept that, I'd accept that. that's way, way better than taking this passage and now reinterpreting all the other passages in light of it. And coming up with the bizarre conclusion that God and the devil are working on the same side, although God's all holy working on that side, the devil's all evil working on that side. Unintelligibility upon unintelligibility. It just gets, it's mystery all the way down. So if I had to go with that interpretation, that would be a better interpretation. But I don't have to go there, uh, because now I'm going to give you an alternative explanation. And this is my third argument. Um, And it's going to require learning a little bit of Greek, so are you ready to learn some Greek? Yeah, yeah. You, I, you eat a Greek I, for breakfast. You love it. Let's, let's get in this thing here. Okay, so the, the, the crucial passage here is verse 3, which according to the NRSV, uh, and uh, all the standard translations have something like this. It says, Jesus answered, or the word there could be just responded, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Um, or the NIV has, this happened so that the works of God might be revealed in him. Now, I'm going to show you the Greek, the actual original Greek. And there's no dispute about what's in the original Greek. Uh, there's no textual variation on this. And, and, and I'll give you the little translation beneath every one of the words. And you got to know that the w- word order is different in Greek than it is in English, so it sounds kind of convoluted. Uh, but I want to see if you notice anything in the original Greek that isn't found in the NRSV translation or any of the standard translations. So here's what we have. Uh, Answer Jesus or responded to Jesus, Neither this man sinned nor the parents of him, but let be manifested the works of God in him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you see something diff- different there? Oh yeah, okay, you're on it. I can't pull anything over on you guys. Okay, so what's missing there is the phrase so that, or this happened so that. That's the, the, there's nothing in the Greek there. All you have in the Greek is ale hina phanerothe, which just means, in Greek it's called a hina subjunctive clause, and it just literally means let be manifested. Let be manifested. So the original Greek says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but let God, let the works of God be manifested. That's all that's in there. So now you might be asking the question, well, then why does the NRSV and all the major translations, why do they supply that phrase, uh, this happens so that? If it's not in the Greek, why would they insert it in the text? And the answer is that they believe it's implied. They think it's clearly implied. And the reason they think it's clearly implied is because they believe Jesus is answering the disciples' question. He's legitimizing their question and giving them the correct answer to their question. Uh, and if, if they're right about that, if that assumption is valid, then, then it is implied. This, this, this happened so that is implied because he's answering their question. Their question is, why did this happen? Was it his parents or was it him? And Jesus is saying, no, not his parents or him, but it was God. And God did this so I could come along and heal him a couple decades later. If they're right about that assumption, then that is a legitimate translation. My question is, why make that assumption? Why, why assume that Jesus was legitimizing their question? As, as I read this passage, um, Jesus is saying, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Wrong question. Read the book of Job, for crying out loud. The only thing that matters is that God's, the works of God be manifested. And so he heals the guy. And he goes on to say that we have to do the works of God while it's still light, because he's the light of the world. And there's a metaphor going on there. I brought light to this guy, and that's what I want to do to the entire world. I think Jesus is invalidating the question. And the thing is, is that that shouldn't surprise us because if you read the Gospels carefully, Jesus almost always invalidates people's questions. He hardly ever answers any of their questions because most of their questions are stupid and based on false assumptions. He does it all the time. They're asking questions of whether proper grounds for divorce or, or, or uh, you know, should we pay taxes or what's your take on the law about stoning women caught in the act of adultery as the woman's laying there right in front of him and, and they have all these kind of questions or why did that tower fall and kill those people uh, over in Siloam and Jesus doesn't answer the questions. It, it, in various ways what he does, is he, he says wrong question, here's what you ought to be concerned with. I haven't come to answer that question. Here's what you ought to be thinking about. They ask him about taxes, and in the end he's saying, the only thing that matters is, are you giving back to God all that bears his image? I'm not going to answer your stupid questions. Or the One guy wants him to settle this dispute, uh, this inheritance law that gives all the firstborn. He says, will you just come in? And Jesus says, do I look like your lawyer? Luke 12 here. Do I look like a lawyer? I, I've got nothing to say about that. Dumb question. He, here's what I will say. Be careful about all kinds of greed. He always turns it around and makes it into a kingdom question. So it doesn't surprise me that he would do this here. Grammatically, it looks odd, but it's, it, it, goes to, it, it, it's, it, it goes to pattern here. Neither this guy nor his parents read the book of Job, but the only thing that matters is let God be manifested. So, folks, I don't think John 9 justifies the conclusion that God made this guy blind, let alone the conclusion that God made every person who was blind blind, or any infirmity they have, that God was behind that, let alone that God's behind all the disasters of this world. Uh, if you're going to believe that, believe it for reasons other than John 9, and other than Romans 9. If you want to know more about that, check out the, the, the past sermon. So let's go full circle here and, and, and go back toward this question. Then if, God, if you're not going to believe that God intentionally took this little baby from this lady after I'm actually giving it to her I minutes earlier, then why did the baby die? And I'll share with you some of what I shared with her. And here you got to put your thinking caps on because I've got to condense this now to 15 minutes, crying out loud, how'd that happen? Okay, so here's the thing. So get, get ready for some intensity. I don't think any human being can answer that question. But the reason we can't answer that question is not because God is so mysterious, that his character and will are so opaque, uh, because, see, God is an excellent communicator. (laughs) He invented language. He knows how to communicate. And he wanted to reveal his true will and character, and that's what he does in Jesus Christ, and it's very, very clear there. Uh, That's how we know that God's always on the side of life, not on the side of death. He reveals himself very clearly. So the reason we can't answer this question isn't because we're not clear about who God is. The reason we can't answer that, this question is because we're not clear about anything else. You know, people always saying God's so mysterious. God, yeah, there's certainly a lot of mystery to God. Who can fathom the depths of God? But, but, but really, God's the one thing we can get clear on because he's revealed himself on this. What we don't know is anything else in this world. Um, look, at, the Bible tells us that that. that Uh, This world is right now a war zone. That the principalities and powers under the leadership of Satan have rebelled against God. And they now use their authority at cross purposes with God. And they've reduced this whole creation to a groaning creation subject to futility and decay, Romans 8. And, and, And we ourselves have been enslaved by them in our primordial past. And so this entire world is a screwed up war zone. And we live in what Robert McNamara once called the fog of war. Have you seen that documentary? It's really an interesting documentary. I encourage it. But the fog of war happens when, whenever there's warfare, there's chaos. And, and there's ambiguity. And you can't see things straight. And, and every decision has unintended consequences because the situation is always so complex. You can't anticipate uh, how, the fallout of all the decisions you make. And often things that you do for the good end up being for the evil. And it's just a fog. And we live in something like this fog here. Because we're living in this war zone. Uh, we're surrounded by fog because we live in an, unfathom, in an unfathomably complex war-torn creation about which we know next to nothing. We're surrounded by fog because in this war zone, everything is connected to everything else. Everything influences everything else. Uh, it, it's a dynamic system. This is what chaos theory has, has, has discovered on a physical level. Uh, that, that's the theory that you can prove now mathematically that it could be the flap of a little butterfly in Taiwan. The flap of a butterfly wing in Taiwan was the decisive variable that led to a hurricane hitting Texas rather than Florida or Mexico. Flap of a butterfly wing. It, it has that little ripple effect. And the systems are so interrelated that little, the littlest change here can result in a magnificent radical change over here. And everything that happens in this world is, is, is like that. It's connected to everything else. And, and, and people make decisions, and angels make decisions, and it has ramifications down the line. But we can never trace back all those ramifications. And so we experience life largely as a random thing. And, and that's part of the fog. That's part of the fog. We, we're surrounded by fog because every decision ever made by a human being and every decision ever made by an, an angelic being, going back to the beginning of time, causes ripple effects. It affects things. And yeah, people still have free will, and angels still have free will, but there's a momentum that's created with our decisions. It's like a, dropping a rock in a pond. It causes a ripple effect. And those ripple effects then interact with other ripple effects, creating what are called interference patterns, which are consequences that no one intended, but they just happen because these, these ripple effects come together. And everything that's happening right now is just the last domino and a long line of dominoes going back to the beginning of time of these ripple effects. So to understand any particular thing— You'd have to understand the entire history of the universe, every decision ever made by a human or an angel, and you have to be able to trace the interference patterns of all those things uh, in order to really explain why anything is the way it is now. That's the fog I'm talking about. It's, I've shared this story too many times, but it illustrates the point. If it wasn't for some idiot ancestor of mine in the 11th century, uh, uh, I I would have been wearing a kilt right now and over in Scotland living in a castle because we were nobility up until then. And then this stupid idiot ancestor of mine kidnapped the feudal lord's daughter and we got kicked out of Scotland and our name's been mud ever since. That one decision and then the whole trajectory of the boys gets changed. And, and it, it, so it is for all of us. For all I know, if, if if some lady hadn't sneezed in the ninth century, you'd be wearing purple pants right now rather than a red dress. I don't know. Or maybe you'd be over in Iowa rather than here, or California, or Scotland. Maybe we'd be married. Who knows? It, see, but that we, we can't untangle all that. And so we know the character of God very good, and, and the will of God. But what we don't know is anything else, which is why we've got to get good at saying, "I don't know." I. I don't know why there are women who can snort or smoke crack while they're pregnant, and yet they have babies that are healthy. Well, this young lady that I was talking about earlier, she's a Christian and takes good care of herself and does everything right, and her baby ends up dying. I'd have to know the entire history of the universe to explain why that is the case. And for all I know, if someone hadn't sneezed differently 1,100 years ago, this wouldn't have happened. Who knows? It's all interrelated. We can't parse that out. I have no idea why this guy was born blind. Um, I'd have to know the entire history of the universe or why anyone is born with affliction or why anyone acquires the afflictions they do later on or why anyone uh, dies when they do, why some people live only to three years old, others to 30, some to 103. Why? Well, that's very, it's, I don't know. No, don't know, but I, I know this, that God looks like Jesus Christ. And so if, if, if any event transpires that doesn't reflect his good character, that doesn't reflect the beauty of, 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 of the God that he reveals, I don't, don't attribute that to, to God. That comes from wills other than God and ultimately goes back to the kingdom of darkness because if, 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 if the powers hadn't rebelled, if Satan hadn't rebelled, if the world wasn't being corrupted, we wouldn't have any of this crap. And so it's ultimately traced back, traceable back down to them, which is why the Gospels always diagnose these afflictions as being under the oppression of the enemy. So folks, in, this, in, this, in the fog of this unfathomably complex, war-torn creation, the only thing that matters is not finding out who to blame, but A, knowing who the true God is, and never letting the pollution of this world pollute your picture of God. I encourage us, in this fog, n- never try to—never assume that anything that happens reflects on the character or will of God. If it's good, yes, every good gift comes from the Father above. So praise God for that. But everything else— You don't have to know in particular how it got here, but it's here and it's not of God. And so it comes from sources other than God. Uh, if, If we can't tell friendly fire from enemy fire, we are in deep trouble. We've got to be able to say like the farmer in Luke 13, this an enemy has done. Okay, an enemy planted this. The farmer, the good farmer, would never go around planting, planting, sowing seeds in his own field. No, an enemy came and did this. Maybe we don't know who the enemy is or why he's doing it, but it is an enemy thing. You've got to be able to know what is of God and what's not of God. Never let catastrophes and disasters and misfortune reflect on the character of God. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He's always good all the time. Amen. 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 And then, and then, then... The second thing that's so important is that whenever we're confronting suffering, whether it's our own or someone else's, the only relevant question to ask is how can the works of God be glorified? Because uh, here's the thing. You don't need to know why the guy was born blind in order to pray for him to be healed. Let God be glorified. You don't have to know why. All the intricate things that go back in time, generations and generations. Why is this particular family homeless? Uh, you don't need to know why. And you don't need to assign any kind of blame and resist anyone who does try to have simple solutions to this. Oh, they just would work harder, they wouldn't be on the street. At Boulder Dash. These things are always very, very complex. But we don't need to know why the family is homeless in order to say, hey, how about we sacrifice uh, in order to get them off the street and manifest the love of God. Let God be glorified. That's all that matters. Let God be glorified. Or I don't have to know why, all the complex reasons, genetic, sociological, spiritual reasons why this particular guy ends up doing a criminal act and going to prison for five years. I don't need to know why that happened or to blame anybody for that happening in order to say, hey, how can we sacrifice together to come alongside this guy when he gets out of prison so he doesn't become another statistic of the 68% that return back to prison within three years. Uh, how, how about we as a church decide to try to fix that problem? You see, you don't need to know why in order to ask the right question, and that is how can we allow the works of God to be manifested? And you don't need to know why, all the complex reasons going back in history, and the history of nations, as to why this particular uh, undocumented immigrant family moved into your neighborhood or attended our church. Uh, who can know the whys of that and resist all simplistic explanations that put the blame on them? Um, but we don't need to know why in order to say, let's welcome them. Let's, let's treat them as family. Let's treat them like Jesus because Jesus told us to treat every stranger like Jesus. And so let's welcome them as though they were themselves Jesus. And then, and I don't have to know why this young lady tragically uh, was given a child and then lost this child during childbirth. I don't know. I'd have to know the history of the universe and every decision ever made by any angel or, p- or person to, un- to be able to explain that. can't do that, so I just don't know. But I do know that this doesn't look like anything Jesus ever did. And so I'm not going to attribute that to Jesus. It's from sources other than, than, than Jesus. And, and, and I don't need to know why in order to ask, how can I alleviate suffering? How can I, how can I manifest the love of God in this situation? You don't need to know why this lady's. is gone through this in order to enter into her pain and to embrace her and love her and accept her in the middle of her pain even when it results in rebellion against what she thought was God. And I don't, don't need to know why in order to introduce her to this beautiful God revealed in Jesus who doesn't go around killing babies. A God who just wants to heal her and walk with her into a future filled with, with hope despite the tragedy she has gone through. A God who promises that some way, somehow he's able to bring redeeming value out of every single nightmare. In the face of life suffering, don't ask the wrong question, ask the right question. So folks, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Always fixed on Jesus. He is the, the one clue as to what God is really like down to his very essence. And when things happen that don't reflect his character, uh, you don't know, know why in particular it happened to this person rather than this person. It's all random. A person is given, given all the lines of uh, the ripple effects that lead to, that are behind every single event. And he, you pray for one person, they get healed. You pray for another one, they die. And, uh, you don't know why. You don't know why. But you don't need to know why to ask the right question. Knowing who God is, how can we manifest that beautiful character in this situation here, which will eliminate or, or at least alleviate some of the suffering that we're experiencing? And I encourage you, when, when you're going through the, these times, there's a human tendency to do this. It's, part, it's, it's a fallen tendency, but get rid of the blame thing. It, just, it, it doesn't serve any... Pr- That's why Jesus says, Wrong question. Wrong question. It's, un, it's actually unanswerable. Now, sometimes we can be profoundly stupid and we bring disaster on ourselves. And in those cases, take responsibility for it. Uh, own up to it and learn from it. But even there, even there, don't fall into a vortex of self-indictment and there's an enemy out there called the accuser who will try to do just that, where you'll beat yourself into the ground. Because he doesn't want any redemptive value to come out of this. God's always looking for a hopeful future, how, you, how, how to bring good out of this. The enemy's not. He just wants to drive you into the grave with this. And, 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 and so you can fall into self loathing. If only I'd done this different. If, if only I'd done, oh, you know, how stupid I am. You know, listen, learn from it, now move on. <laughs> you know, learn from it, repent of it, and, now, and move on. Because God's always about life. And life is in the future, not about death, blaming yourself with indictments. We have a family here, I'll close with this. I, a number of years ago who lost a child in a car crash they were traveling in a van together and and the son said can I take off my seatbelt just so I can play this game with my sister and she said oh yeah fine because they had a long trip ahead of them and and, um, a person ended up pulling in front of the van which caused them to to overturn and he got thrown out the window and died and thankfully this family was able to work through this in, in as beautiful a way as I can imagine it didn't come easy but they did but there are people who would take that event, and see, they'd they, 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 they screen out all the other variables that factored into it and just put it all on themselves. I said yes. If only I hadn't said yes, you can take your seatbelt off. My son would still be alive. It's all my blame. Now, if you think about it, there's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people who say, okay, take your seatbelt off, or who don't even put their kids in seatbelts, and that never happens to them. So more's going on there than just you, you see? And and I'd have to know the whole history of the universe to explain why this happened here in this situation. And it's something to do with the person pulling in front of you, which doesn't happen very often. And and that's just a random thing. But don't, yeah, learn whatever you're supposed to learn, but don't bear the shoulder of the full responsibility of this. And to the degree that you do, you forgive yourself and move on, because God's always about life in the future, never about experiencing death in the present. Amen? Amen. Amen. Don't fall in that vortex. All right, would you stand? As uh, I like to call the prayer teams up here, and if you're here this morning and have any need that could use prayer, I encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks. Uh, They'd love to minister to you. And if you're here this morning and you're not a surrendered follower of Jesus, but there's something in your heart that's saying you should really consider that, come up here and talk to these folks and they'd love to explain to you what it is to get started on this adventure of being a follower of Jesus. So folks, we're going to leave right now and you're going to go out into a war zone. It's foggy out there. And as we go out in that fog and that polluted atmosphere, I encourage us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus uh, and, and, and never let the pollution of the world pollute your image of God because the beauty of your life will never outrun the beauty of your picture of God. And when we come upon suffering, whether it's our own or someone else's, get rid of the blame game completely. And just ask, how can I manifest the character of God, the works of God in this situation to alleviate the suffering that I've encountered? If you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.